that started last week that Scott led us off in on the greatness of ordinary grace. It's a series on the means of grace. The means of grace is a 50-cent phrase you sometimes hear thrown around, which simply means, what are the normal ways that you grow in the Christian life? What are the normal ways you grow in the Christian life? Before I read Psalm 19 for us, I want you to imagine with me a wheel. Can you picture it? A wheel. And in the center of that wheel is a hub. And out of that hub comes three supports. It's a three-spoked wheel. And the circumference of that wheel is strengthened by the spokes that are connected to the hub. Do you see it? A three-spoked wheel. Do you have the image in your mind? That center hub is a deep understanding of the gospel. Everything spins on that. And the outer rim of that wheel is your obedience, your Christian character, your conduct. But have you ever seen a bicycle that tried to go down a street without the spokes? You don't get very far. You end up on the street with road rash. The spokes strengthen the rim. And so also in the Christian life, we have a three-spoked wheel. And those three spokes are the preached word, the sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper, and prayer. And you can try all you want to speed down the highway on your bicycle, but if you do not have spokes on your tires, you will not get very far. So I want you to keep that image in mind. We're going to heap image upon image upon image on you throughout this series. Scott told you that the means of grace were like a lens. They were like a jeep and a boat and a helicopter coming to rescue you. The means of grace are like a three-spoked wheel. Those spokes have to be there to support the hub, a deep understanding of our justification in Christ. And the speed of that wheel is in a sense, your Christian walk. And all of our speeds are different. So quit comparing yourself or your speed to someone else. We all travel at different rates of speed. The first means of grace we're going to look at for the next two weeks are the preached Word of God. And nowhere in the whole of the Bible do I think is there a clearer picture of what it means to understand the preached Word of God than Psalm 19. I keep trying to get out of the Psalms, but I can't. We're back in them this week again. Psalm 19. Would you stand for the reading of God's Word this morning? Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out throughout all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the ends of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rule of the Lord are true. 
and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. In keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but God's word stands forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. The word ordinary just means to be without special distinction. It means to be normal. The ordinary means of the Christian life are the ones that, in my experience, I most neglect. I want something cool. I want a retreat or a conference. I want a really intimate time alone at the beach with Jesus. But God's Word repeatedly throughout the Old Testament and New, one story, all of Scripture tells us that the means of grace, the ordinary mundane means of grace, are how you grow in the Christian life. In fact, the reason why many of you feel so spiritually stagnant is because you have not availed yourself to the means of grace. They are the normal ways we grow. And the first of those means of grace are the Word of God. And as I mentioned, there's no better place that gives us a doctrine of what God's Word is than in Psalm 19. So let's look at it together this morning for a few minutes. And I want you to see three things. I want you to see the wordless word, verses 1 to 6. I want you to see the perfect word, verses 7 through 11. And then I want you to see the living word, verses 12 through 14. First, the wordless word. Look at your bulletin on page 10. The first thing that you realize about this psalm is that it's communicating something to us, isn't it? Listen to the way that it just cascades verbs that communicate to us. Declaring, proclaim, speech, revealing. In verse 3 and 4, it kind of sounds like a paradox. It says, there is no speech, nor are there words. And yet, later it says, everybody hears a voice. What, what does that mean? Well, there are such things as wordless words, aren't there? I mean, you can only listen to the sound of the rain on our roof as Will led us through the confession of faith to, to know that there's ways that God communicates to us about His beauty and His glory. And you know this, like when you go to Osage County and you look over the hills and you see the setting sun... Like there's something in you that reminds you that you're not alone. When you go to the mountains or to the beach, you have these, you know, these amazing, you know, you, you feel almost like you're looking at a work of art. Like when you go to the Philbrook and you see an amazing picture, like you, you, you're, you transcend your context and you realize there's something larger going on. You're caught up into something. Why is it the case that when you look at nature, you feel the same way? Why do you feel like it's a work of art? Why do you feel the same way as when you look at a great piece of art? Because it is. 
that God communicates to us through silent words, through wordless words. And this teaches us something very, very important about nature, doesn't it? What are the implications of the fact that God communicates to us through wordless words? Well, it tells us, first of all, that there's no other religion, not an Eastern religion, not a Western religion, there's no other religion except Christianity that holds creation in such high regard. Listen, you can, you can see um, a seashell on the seashore, and it is glorifying God. In fact, it's glorifying God perhaps in ways that you're not because it's living up to its intended purpose. It just operates by, animals operate by instinct. We have willfully chosen to run from God, and so in some ways, seashells have a leg up on us, don't they? They're, nature glorifies God by its very nature. It's doing what it was meant to do. And so also, we should have a very high regard for nature. For those people who think Christianity, listen, all they do is ruin the earth. No, the earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof. He's established it upon the seas. He has built the foundation upon the rivers. It's all his, Psalm 24 tells us. So no other religion in the world has as high a view of creation as Christianity does. The second thing it teaches you is that There are people who are not Christians who are incredibly wise and incredibly joyful. Like, why would God, why wouldn't God just communicate to his church? Think about this, please. Why wouldn't God just communicate to you or to me or to the church only those things about himself that he communicates to all of us in nature? Why would he just let the secret be ours? Well, because he's gracious. Like the world is a far better place because in some ways all of us have the same information when we look at nature. We all know that man is special. We all know that creation is a work of art. And we all know that God exists. In fact, Christianity, more than any other religion, actually honors those people who don't believe in it more than any other faith. Have you thought about that? In most every other world religion, you're either stupid or you're not, worth live, uh, uh, you're not worth the air that you breathe if you don't believe in our particular faith. But Christianity says, no, listen, through creation, we all have general revelation. People can be amazingly wise and smart and brilliant and joyful, even though they're not Christians. Doesn't mean that they have a relationship with Jesus, but it, don't take away with the fact that they can't be amazing benefits to civil society as they have been. So Christianity is a higher view of creation, actually, than any other faith. Psalm 19 argues, and it also says that we actually have, a, therefore, a much higher view of those people who don't believe in the gospel than any other faith. The last thing the first part of Psalm 19 teaches us is that nature itself is not enough. It's not enough. I mean, you can, you can do so much with wordless words, can't you? Like, I could try to communicate to you right now with gestures, and I could do the best that I could in telling you what to do. And I was reminded of this when, um, when, when our kiddos were very, very young in New Jersey, and I was leading a service for a church there, and, and uh, our son Andrew, uh, was, he jailbroke out of the nursery, and they didn't know it. And in the middle of the service, my two-year-old walking down the center aisle, and I tried the best that I can to say, 
go with mom. She's right over there. And I tried to point him there, and I, was, I couldn't do it. I was talking to people, so I had to, like, gesture. She's over there. And I gave the pastoral prayer, and I prayed, and my eyes were closed. And as I got to the end of that prayer, all of a sudden I felt this little hand reach up and just grab my hand. I mean, if I tried to gesture to you, you know, meet me for lunch with your family. I'll be in the back room of Los Cabos at 12 o'clock. We wouldn't get very far. You get mixed messages whenever you try to use gestures. And so also we do get mixed messages when we look at creation because Harvey, Irma, tornadoes send us mixed messages, don't they? And so what do you need? You don't need just the wordless words. You need, secondly, the perfect word. And notice what he says beginning in verse 7. He says, the law of the Lord is perfect. And the Hebrew word for perfect is tamim, which means complete or whole, lacking nothing. Perfect, coherent. It's all there. But which part, Blake, are perfect? It says the law of the Lord is perfect. Which part is the law? When the Bible refers to law, in speaking about itself, very often it actually means the whole of Scripture. In fact, twice when Jesus is talking about the whole of Scripture, he says it's the law, as the law says. And then twice he quotes the Psalms. And the Psalms aren't law, they're poetry. And the Bible here is using the word law to be the coherent of, coherence of Scripture itself, all of Scripture, not just certain parts of it. And all of it is authoritative, and all of it is binding. I mean, if, I mean just look at the way that it, it, it shows us through the words that it uses. Listen, it, it, the testimony of the Lord is sure. It's precepts. It's commandments. What does that mean? Well, it teaches us at least two things. It teaches us about the authority of Scripture and the power of Scripture, the authority of Scripture, and that the whole of the Bible is authoritative. It's binding on you. Um, we don't often read it that way because we like to take parts of the Bible that we don't like, and we like to Thomas Jeffersonize them, don't we? like to ignore those parts. And if you're like me, you tend to ignore those parts that, like, we think about murder, for example. We'll focus on thou shalt not murder. We like that one. I mean, none of us, perhaps in the specific sense, have ever murdered somebody, but, but we murder people with our mouth all the time. So we like the command, do not murder, but you know, we don't like the command, don't be greedy or don't be prideful. Or don't gossip. No, those are the ones that we actually have a harder time obeying. We take passages all the time and emphasize them above others, but God says it's all binding on us. It's all, in that sense, perfect. You remember in the uh, Pirates of the Caribbean, you know, the series where they, they have the whole underlying premise of much of that movie is about the pirates living up to the pirate code. And do you remember the, the joke of the movie is that they never keep it. They keep breaking the pirate's code. And Jack Sparrow one time says, well, we think of them more as guidelines. And that's what we do with Scripture. 
But you have to understand that it's authoritative over the whole of your life. You, can't, you don't get to pick and choose. You don't get to say that culture will tell me what parts of the Bible are valid and what parts aren't. The culture doesn't sit over the authority of the Bible. The Bible must sit in authority over your culture and tell you what parts of your culture are valid and what parts of your culture are not. Listen, Jesus says in, in Matthew chapter 5, he says, Not a jot or a tittle will remain unfulfilled. That it's all applicable to you. A, a jot was the smallest part of a Hebrew letter, or the smallest Hebrew letter, rather, and a tittle was, a, was the smallest part of a Hebrew letter. So it is authoritative to the word. It's authoritative down to the parts of the word. The word right, when it says the precepts of the Lord are right, is the word for straight edge. It is the word by which you measure everything else. It doesn't just teach you about the authority of the word, but it also teaches you about its power. Listen, it says that it revives your soul. Commentaries think that the word um, soul there relates to our word today for your psyche. It revives you psychologically. It reminds you. It reminds you of who you are. It reminds me of the movie um, Memento, where the main character, Leonard, you know, he's played by Guy Pierce, you know, is this story where he has uh, amnesia and he forgets who he is. And so what does he do? He takes pictures and he writes down notes and he, tattoo, he tattoos things on his body to remind him who he is. And in the same way, Scripture is a picture. It's a, it's a notebook. It's a tattoo for your soul to know who you are because your problem and my problem is that we forget we're forgetful people, and we need to be reminded again and again and again that the way to have your soul revived is not through a technique. It is through His Word, which is perfect. And it says not only does it revive your soul, but it makes wise the simple. I mean, one of the humbling things about growing older, I turned 40 this year, is that I can look back 15 years ago and realize how stupid I once was. And you can look back, if you know, look back at yourself 10, 15 years ago and the stupid decisions that you made in college. How foolish they were. And Scripture gives us commands to make us wise. And the, the problem is that if that's true of us 15 years ago, then what are we going to think about ourselves now, 15 years from now? So I guess we're all stupid now. <laughs> But the power of Scripture is that it gives you wisdom to know what are God's commands, what does He expect of you now. It makes you wise. So it not only has authority over your life, but it has power. The power shapes you and molds you. And it delights your heart. Obeying Scripture can save you from being a fool now, but it also can give you joy now. Notice what it says. It says, the precepts of the Lord are right like a straight edge, rejoicing the heart. C.S. Lewis, when he wrote about the Psalms and the reflections on the Psalms, he spends some time on Psalm 19, and he says, I can get how the promises of the Bible are beautiful. I can get how, how uh, the work of Jesus is beautiful, but I, I don't understand how the commands are beautiful. 
He says, more to be desired are they than gold, Lewis writes, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey from the honeycomb. One can well understand this being said of God's mercy, God's visitations, his attributes. But what the poet is actually talking about is God's law, his commands. This was to me a vast mystery. How can commands be joyful and delightful? I can understand that man must respect the statutes and try to obey them and assent to them in his heart, but it's very hard to understand how they could be, so to speak, delicious, that they exhilarate. And then later, Lewis continues, this is not priggery or even scrupulosity. It is the language of a man who is ravished by beauty. And if we cannot all share his experience, we shall be the losers. The scripture is given to you to make you wise. It is meant to delight your heart. But one of the greatest reasons why we never are ravished by the beauty of scripture is because we cannot get past the objections we have about the Bible. Like if you spend any time at University of Tulsa, you spend any time at RSU, you spend any time on most of our high school campuses, it doesn't take you very long to hear something like, the Bible's authoritative? Like, I don't, I can't, I can't go with that. Every verse of Scripture? Listen, there's parts of the Bible that are so oppressive and regressive. I can't buy that. Well, here's a question for you. Do you realize that there are no universal set of offensive texts? This summer, um, I did premarital counseling for a couple outside of our church. Their names were John and Anna. John was a, uh, he grew up in Tulsa. They met at OU Law School. Anna grew up in Nigeria. And it became very clear early on that when we began to talk about uh, sex, that Anna came from a very strong communal culture. And sex outside of marriage is a no-brainer. You wouldn't have sex with somebody you're not married to. It would bring shame to the family be an embarrassment. But they had seen atrocities. They had seen people killed in cold blood in Nigeria that would stagger our imagination, and she began to tell stories. So when you want me to forgive somebody, that I have a hard time doing because we have seen evil. And John would say, well, listen, the part about sex before marriage, it's just culturally ensconced. I mean, it's, it's not that big of a deal anymore. I mean, pff, that's old. That's regressive. That's oppressive. But the part about forgiving people, oh no, that's a totally, you totally forgive people. And you can see sitting at Bricktown Brewery, dinner with these two, they had completely different views of what was oppressive in the Bible. There's no set canon of what part of Scripture is oppressive. I mean, think about, think about things that your great-grandparents believed. Think about things that they believed, you know, just 50 years ago. I mean, 20 to 50% of what they believe, what they held dearly, it, or it's an embarrassment to you. And in 50 years from now, your great-grandchildren are going to look at you, and they're going to say, some of the culturally ensconced things that you believe, they're an embarrassment. You may give you an example. Here's a commercial from 1949. It has a voiceover that says, you know, if you were to follow a busy doctor as he makes his daily rounds of calls, you'd find yourself having a mighty busy time keeping up with him. 
Time out from many men of medicine usually means just long enough to enjoy a cigarette. And because they know what a pleasure it is to smoke a mild, good-tasting cigarette, they're particular about the brand they choose. In repeated national studies, doctors in all branches of, branches of medicine, doctors in all parts of the world, are asked, what cigarette do you smoke, doctor? And once again, the brand that was most chosen was Camel. Yes, according to this repeated national survey, more doctors smoke Camel than any other cigarette. So why not change to Camel? And for the next 30 days, see what a difference it makes in your smoking enjoyment. See how Camel agrees with your throat. <laughs> see how mild and good tasting a cigarette can be. And then the spot closes with a very classy woman smoking a cigarette and smiling into the camera. I mean, we look at that today and go, that's horrible research. But back then, friends, that was classy. Do you know that what you think today, many things you think today are going to be embarrassment to your great-grandchildren? But here's the problem. You don't exactly know what's going to be embarrassing to them, do you? So why not rely on a text of Scripture that helps you become transcultural? Why not pick something ancient, something that has stood the test of time? Because the reason you can't critique your own culture is because you're in it. The reason your grandparents, like, they weren't bad people. They thought smoking was good for your throat, for crying out loud. And today, they couldn't critique their, like, like they couldn't critique their culture because they couldn't get out from it, and neither can you. So why not allow the Bible to be for you what Scott said it was last week. It's a lens through which you understand all of your life. It helps you become transcultural. The Bible has power to change you because it helps you step out of your culture in order to rightly evaluate it. The Bible sits over your culture to determine what parts of your culture are valid and what parts of your culture are not. Your culture doesn't sit over the Bible telling you what parts of the Bible are valid and what parts are not. Are you with me? Not only is it culturally enlightening, it says it enlightens the eyes, verse 8, but it's also psychologically liberating. More to be desired than they are gold, much, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. And by them your servant is warned, and keeping them there is great reward. In verse 13, it says, keep your servant from hidden sins, let them not have dominion over me. It says that God's word is to be desired more than gold itself. And there's a problem because we are mastered by other things than God. It says, Lord, let me not be mastered by my hidden faults. Euripides in the 5th century B.C. said, no one is wholly free. You're a slave to wealth or to the law or to the people that you're seeking to please, but you are not free. Or Simone Vale, who's the French activist, said, one has only the choice between God and idolatry. That's all. If one denies God, that one is worshiping something of this world in the belief that one sees them only as such. But in fact, though unknown to oneself, you are imagining the attributes of divinity in them. In other words, if you hold anything else up to be the way that your affections are satisfied, you're treating it as God and you are therefore becoming an idolater. Or in the immortal words of the fantastic theologian Garth Brooks, 
I can take the steel guitars and the fiddles off or we can make a little more pop or cover ideas that are a little less cowboy. But you've got to look at yourself in the mirror and ask, just whose flag are you under? You can change your style, you can change your music, but you're still under someone's flag. And it's God's word that frees you. Now, when you hear sermons, when you go to Bible studies, you can understand that God has given you more than just nature to communicate about himself, that he's given you his word. And his word is perfect. It's authoritative and it's powerful. It liberates you. But your problem is not information, is it? We have all the information we want. You carry devices in your pockets right now that can give you information about anything that you want. Your problem is not information. Your problem and my problem is a relationship. And the precise difference between teaching and preaching comes in verses 12 through 14. Because your problem is that you need a relationship. You are changed not through information, friends. You are changed through a relationship with the living word. Many of you have gone to church your whole life and you've never really radically been changed by the gospel. You've just learned more data. You become greater theologians. But there are people who are brilliant theologians who are dead spiritually because God's word has never become alive for them. God's word is sharper than any two-edged sword, able to divide soul from spirit and joint from marrow. It's able to discern the thoughts and intentions of the heart. But when God's perfect word becomes his living word, ah, then you can discern your errors. It says that God's word helps you discern your errors. Why? Because it's not just giving you information about the world out there. It's giving you information about your own heart. And when the gospel begins to pierce you, it begins to become incredibly self-revealing. It shows you that you have prostrated yourself before other gods besides the Lord Christ. And that, in fact, is one of the reasons why you're so spiritually constipated is because you've consistently giving yourself over to a thousand other gods begging for your affection. But when you look at Psalm 19 and you see that there is a true and better David beneath the psalm who is writing this text, who was the one who fought our great giant of sin and death for us, who conquered the Goliath that haunt us and won our salvation, then you begin to see that it is Christ who changes you that beneath every jot and tittle of Scripture is Jesus. That when you read every passage of Scripture, you shouldn't just read it as a way to get information. You should read it as a way to foster your relationship. It's about Jesus. He is the one who helps you discern your errors. People can tell you about your own errors for your entire life. Yeah, I know that I've got weaknesses here or there, but it's the Holy Spirit of Christ who pierces your heart to begin to trust the gospel is enough. Who can declare you innocent from hidden faults? Only a person. Who can keep your servant back from presumptuous sin? Who can not let them have dominion over you? Only the mediator who's at the Father's right hand right now interceding for you. Who knows your name? Who's bragging to the Father about you? Who's protecting you? Friends, Awasa in Tulsa is full of people who see his wordless word and his perfect word. But we want to be a church that shows you his living word, who is a person. 
that behind every passage of Scripture you read is the Lord Christ. And it's found right there at the end of the psalm. The last word, Redeemer. It is, the law that, it is the law of God that rewires your heart because of the relationship that you're able to have with Christ. Not long ago, there were rats. It's an embarrassing story, so don't, hold me, uh, don't make me feel worse, worse about it. There were rats that got into my car, and they chewed through the wiring of my car engine. Couldn't start my car one day trying to go to the church. So I had to have a tow truck tow it to Broken Arrow so Ferguson Subaru could rewire my car engine. There are rats that have chewed through your wiring. It's called sin, and you have fed them, even unconsciously. Who can declare me innocent from my, even my hidden sins? Listen, it's not the known sins that are the worst problem for you. It's the hidden sins. It's the rats that chew your wiring through. And it is only when you see the living Word of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, that you can be rewired, that your soul, as the text says, can be revived that you can begin to not only be revived, but that you can be able to discern your errors. That he can become a delight for you. So, how are you rewired? You are rewired by seeing the living word. By being, as Lewis says, captivated by beauty. Because what changes you is relationship, not information. You have enough information. What you need is a relationship. And Jesus invites you to dine with him this morning. Would you do it? Would you come? Would you confess? Not that you don't have enough information, but would you come confessing that you need that relationship because sin has separated you from it? And if there's anybody here who's never come to the point in their life when they saw the beauty of Jesus where they recognized that they were sinners and they needed his grace, that you saw the good news, the good news of what the gospel teaches you, that yes, you can know all you want about scripture, you can be a great theologian, but if you do not have that relationship with him, the intimacy of that relationship, the word's not alive. And the means of grace and the preaching of God's word are to help you see the beauty of the gospel each and every week. He's here. And he intends to change you. Will you let him? The wordless word, the perfect word, the living word. Would you run to him? For he is alive at the right hand of the Father, interceding for you. Know that you're more broken than you can ever imagine. And yet, through the finished work of Christ, who was the jot, tittle, completion of all of Scripture. He was the true Israel. He was the one who accomplished for you everything the law said. He did it. It's all binding. He fulfilled it so that you would not be crushed by its demands. Run to him in grace, we pray. Amen.